and take up your Bibles, please. And we'll take a reading uh, from 2 Timothy and chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 14. Paul, writing to his young companion, Timothy, says, But you, Timothy, continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Our God, as we consider the preciousness of what you have given to us in your word, we need your help, the help of the Spirit as we have been singing, to help us to see the truth contained in your word, that your word is your word. Help us as we ask for this help in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, the Bible needs no external defense at all. Uh, God is the source of all things, and everything is derivative from Him, and everything is derived from the Scriptures. That's a bold claim. But when we serve a God who is without fault and is perfect in everything, and He has given this to us, as he says in his word, then we must believe that. That sounds like a bit of a circular argument, but it's not. The God who cannot lie, Titus 1 verse 2, Hebrews 6 verse 18 among some texts. The God who does not make mistakes, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, his way, his work is perfect. The God who cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. This God has given us the Bible. It's true in all that it says. It does not mislead or deceive. It's completely trustworthy and reliable. And in the original autographs that were written by the authors, it is without error. And thankfully, it's not a mystical book. Like so many sacred writings of so many so-called religions that exist, it's not something that requires a special key to unlock its meaning. Instead, what God has given to us is straightforward to read and to understand. And in fact, it is self-interpreting. In our talk now, we're going to consider how the Bible is what the Bible is. And we've got three main stopping points along the way. The first is we're going to consider the source of the Bible or the Scriptures. The second is the transmission of the Scriptures. And the third is the boundary, the boundary of the Scriptures. Now, I'm using the term the Scriptures or Scripture, and I'll use that throughout uh, alongside the word for Bible. And it's a technical term that's used in everyday language and in the Scriptures to describe a sacred writing. But we believe it to speak 
of the sacred, God-breathed Word of God through the words of men, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the completeness of what we have here in our hands or on our devices today. The source of the Scriptures then. We've read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's encouragement to a younger man, Timothy, don't forget what you've learned. Be thankful from where you've learned it. And you put it into practice. It's able to make you wise for salvation. This word has already saved you, Timothy. And it'll make you wise as you work out your salvation in your life. And then verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture. I used to limit that in my own understanding to the Old Testament but I've come in my studies in recent years to understand that Paul was knowledgeable about his own writing of Scripture. So he's writing not just about the Old Testament, but about the things that he and others at that time were writing, which they understood to be Scripture as well. All Scripture, every part of it, is God-breathed. Now, the version you're reading might say inspired. Uh, you read that in New American Standard and you live in translation, the King James Version, New King James Version or the Revised Version, whatever you, you have with you, you might see the word inspired. Some versions, uh, like the one I'm reading here, in the NIV and the ESV, um, they have God breathed, which is actually a better translation of the Greek word theonoustos. Theo for God, noustos, to breathe forth specific Greek language. The reason why I'm saying it's better is because we use the word inspired today to speak of people who can run around a sports field in a fascinating way or can create marvelous works of art or uh, who can produce wonderful pieces of music or play it. They're inspired and they're inspirational. That's not the sense of the word at all. It's not something uh, that is within the human being. This, the source, is from God though God uses human beings who unmistakably leave their mark on his word that is breathed out. All scripture, all scripture is God-breathed. I want you to turn with me as well now to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. You're going to have to take away the challenge of uh, verse 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3 for yourselves to see what the Word of God is beneficial for and its work in your life to make you complete. And we all want to be complete in our lives. But look at this with me, please. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. And Peter, in writing his second letter here, refers to the time when he and two other disciples were on the mountain and the Lord was transfigured before them. A marvelous experience when they saw the glory of the Lord Jesus shining from him. But he goes on to say this in verse 19. And we have as more sure the prophetic word. What he's saying is, you know what's even better than that experience? Is the word of God. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from 
God. This sits alongside 2 Timothy 3, 16. Peter's talking about the superior benefit to himself and to all believers of the Word of God, the Scriptures. And we look to that as a lamp shining in a dark place. And he says quite clearly, no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. It's not something that somebody has just dreamt up. It's not their own inspiration. It's not something they've just dreamed up. He says that it's no Scripture that is the product of human activity alone. But instead he goes on to say that men were moved, and the Greek word is pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O, which means to be carried along, which is why it's translated as it is. Men being moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's a remarkable line. Imagine a leaf at this time of the year that falls into a river and it floats downstream. Yeah, that's the thing that's in in view here. Paul has told us all scripture is God-breathed. Peter tells us that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It wasn't something of their own imagining. It was a process brought about by God in their experience to produce in miraculous way the scriptures that are so precious to us. The word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh appears 240 times at least in the Old Testament. Thus says Yahweh, or thus says the Lord, appears over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, and more than 4,000 times in the completeness of the text of the Bible. The Bible claims it is the Word of God. I'm going to show you some internal evidences for that. You can try and turn these up, but you might just be quicker to make a note and look at them later. Let's consider the Old Testament authors and how they understood that they were under this process of being carried along by the Holy Spirit as God did his work to breathe out his word through them. 2 Samuel 23, verses 2 to 3, David says, The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men is a righteous one who rules in the fear of God. The opening of verse 2 says that he knew it was something from God that caused him to write what he did. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, when he's in a song of praise, when he sees what God is doing, he says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 70, says, as God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. You know, a prophet is really someone who speaks forth the word of God. And those who've written down the word of God could be classed as that too because they've written down the word of God that has been God-breathed through them. Peter, when he stands up on the day of Pentecost, actually, let's go back well, a little while earlier, Acts chapter 1. He's with the gathered disciples and Judas has committed suicide and so on after betraying the Lord. He says this in verse 16. He stands up to the little group. He says, men, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Listen. Which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The Holy Spirit by the mouth of David. Peter again. Acts 3. He stands up in Jerusalem to preach. 
He says, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. It's by the mouth of men. Peter again, in his first letter, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 11, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Take that one away and spend some time with that text. Because what he's saying is these guys were writing down legible, understandable text under the control and the superintendence of the Holy Spirit as they were carried along, as God breathed out his word through them, but yet they didn't understand the detail. And they would go away and research it. Well, God has said this. When is this going to work out? It wasn't gobbledygook. It was clear. And it pointed them to further research as to how this might work itself out. Jesus, in Mark chapter 12 and verse 36, said this. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet, quoting Psalm 110. There was the Lord, Jesus, endorsing the process of the Spirit speaking through David in Psalm 110. You have Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah who mention or related to them having the words of Yahweh put in their mouths. It's a remarkable process. Let's think about the New Testament because it applies there too. It applies to the apostles and also to their close companions, because the New Testament authority looked for apostolic authorship or those very closely associated with the apostles to have their authority. Peter, in chapter 3 of Second Peter, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, Old Testament, and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He says, don't forget the things that were spoken and are actually being written down is, is implied. Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being betrayed took bread. What I was given, I've passed on. A vehicle for God's breathing out of his word, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul again says, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Paul again, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13, and for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you received the word of God, he's referring to the time when he went to preach in the city of Thessalonica, the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. That was his preaching, of course. But Paul knew that his preaching went beyond or his Authority went beyond his preaching to also his writings. Which is why he says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are asleep. You still with me? Multiple evidences, and that's not all of them, that point to the reality of the authors within the Scriptures, knowing that they were under a, a divine process that meant that God was breathing His Word as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. They knew they were under the supervision of God, the Holy Spirit, in the process. So the Bible is the Word of God through the words of men. It's a mysterious process. We can't explain it. It's a supernatural. It's a divine operation. One thing we can say that it isn't, it's not dictation, like many other claimed sacred texts. It's not merely perceptions or feelings. You don't get that anywhere in the scriptures. There's no feelings or perceptions. It's not interpretations of visions. Do you notice that in the scriptures you're given the vision, you're not given an interpretation of it unless the interpretation is given to support the vision. It's not somebody saying there, I saw a vision, this is what it means. God superintends the process to provide us with the word. We thank him for it. It's without error in all that it's written. If you ever come across the word inerrant when you're reading some books or Bible study notes, inerrant means it's without error in what was originally written down. It's infallible, which means it's without fault in all that it says. It must be if God is the one who has breathed it out because there is nothing but perfection with God. He would never give us anything that can be faulted or would be misleading. It's immutable, which means it's unchanging. The Word of God is complete, and what we were given in the autographs is a complete thing. What we have today is a translation of that, and there'll be more said on that later. It's also this. It's also sufficient for us. I love the text in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, where Peter says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Yes, God's power has brought us into the salvation that we know through faith in Jesus the Savior, but his divine power too has operated to give us the word of God which reveals the person of Jesus the Savior to us. And in here is contained everything for life and for a godly life. Praise God for the working of his word. And for that reason, the word of God is authoritative. And as I said at the very beginning, it's easily understandable. You're going, no, it's not. Yes, it is. Spend time with it, and you'll find that it makes sense. Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, over a period of 1,500 years, through 50 different authors, from various backgrounds, from sheep herders to royalty, on three different continents, using various different writing styles in three languages, writing about more than 3,000 cast members, there is the production of one story. It's got one message. From 66 different books, you start from beginning to end, and you do a sequential reading of the Scriptures, and you will see that there is one author behind it all. Over that period of time with that many authors from all of those backgrounds, the superintendents, the sovereign work of God, as he breathed out his word, as men were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak the things of God. 
Now, here's a very important thing we mustn't ever miss, that it's the words of the Bible that are inspired, if we want to use that word. It is not the author's. We have, depending on your translation, about 750,000 words in your Bibles, or about three and a half million letters. And that's important to hold on to the letters, for a reason we'll see in a moment. But the men are not inspired. The reason for that is other works are referenced, and Paul references himself other letters that he wrote that are not included in the Scriptures. So when he wrote them, he must have understood that this was not Scripture and other people were the same. So the men were not inspired all the time so that everything they wrote was from God. There were times when God worked with people to bring about his word. It is the word that is inspired or God breathed, not the people. Let's think about those letters. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, The Lord Jesus said, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says that the smallest letter, an iota, won't pass from the law. And that was a general term for the Old Testament, or maybe he was being specific about the Torah at that time, of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. He says, not even the smallest letter of that can be faulted. And he went further than that. He said the stroke. He said not the smallest letter or stroke, a little serif, a little mark, a projection. I know that's in your presentation later, Carl. I'll not say much more on it. That which seems insignificant, he says, will not pass away. In fact, in Luke 16, the Lord is recorded as saying this, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. You know what he's saying? Right down to the letters. He says it's easier for the universe to implode than it is for a little mark of the original autographs of the Word of God to be found faulty. That's remarkable. Let that one sink in. Not even the smallest of letters. You know what that means? It means that God overcame the inbuilt propensity in humans like you and me for error. I wouldn't invite you to come and look at my handwriting because it's a disgrace these days. It comes, I think, with typing more than writing. But there's errors throughout it. And when I type, there's errors throughout it. What Jesus was saying here is that what God did as he breathed out his word of all scripture, as men were moved by the Holy Spirit, as God spoke through them, He overcame the human propensity for error so that what we have in the original manuscripts, the original autographs, is perfect. Praise God for that. I mentioned before that Paul wrote a number of letters that he refers to. You can find his references to those in Colossians 4 verse 16 or 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9 or 2 Corinthians 2 verse 3 can find that he references other letters that are not contained in the Bible. He knew that there was a time when God was working with him to produce the Word of God. Now, I need to say something here about the role of the Holy Spirit. We've already spoken about him from 2 Peter chapter 1. The role of the Holy Spirit with the apostles. In Hebrews chapter 1, 
well-known verses to many. It says, God having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, 39 books of the Old Testament, and these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say how Jesus is far superior to everyone as the great Son of God. The author of Hebrews was recognizing that Jesus was the full and final word of God. In fact, he was the word incarnate if you go to John chapter 1. The expression of God that came in flesh here. But he was the one who knew he was not lingering, that he would go through the cross, die for sinners, be raised to life and ascend back to glory, and his apostles as the official spokespersons on his behalf would need a supernatural help to be able to remember everything he taught. Which is why when you go to John chapter 14 and verse 26, in the upper room the night before the Lord goes to the cross and he knows that's coming, he's concerned that the disciples will know their responsibilities. He says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. All right, you guys sitting around the table. When I'm gone, the Holy Spirit's coming and he reminds you of everything I said so you can teach it and you can write it down. John 16 and verses 13 to 14, he goes back and he repeats a similar thing. And he says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. The primary application of that text was the men sitting around the table with the Lord Jesus that night, the apostles. The Holy Spirit would be given, and in their responsibility as Jesus' own commissioned men, the Holy Spirit would do a work with them to enable them to teach and to write and to make sure their companions would write that which is the word of God. You come to 2 Peter chapter 3, and verses 15 and 16 tell us that as the apostles were doing their work in various places and writing letters, they recognized that some of the output that was being shared around the churches was to be considered scripture. Because Peter there refers to Paul's letters, which are difficult to understand. Uh, just like the rest of the scriptures. Now, I said the scriptures aren't difficult to understand. Uh, Peter was saying there are some diff things that are difficult in Paul's letters. But he refers to it as scripture, along with and at the same level as the authority of the Old Testament. So at the time that they were alive and writing, they knew that God was working in them. That's the first of the three stopping points. The next two are quick, quicker. That's the source of the scriptures. I wanted to major our time on that because it's from God, through men, for his glory and for our good and for eternity. You know, we have no, none of the autographs today, and that's a great thing because somebody could take an autograph and make a change, and suddenly all the manuscripts are wrong. So God in his providence has removed the autographs. Instead, we have this wealth of manuscript evidence that Brian 
has been referring to, particularly for the New Testament. But I want to say something about the Old Testament system of transmission of the Scriptures, the techniques that were proven by the discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Masorets, which was a scribal school just after the time of Christ, uh, Jewish, um, they used the same strict copying techniques that were employed by the scribes that are referenced in Jesus' time and back into the Old Testament. Materials to strict specifications. Nothing was to be copied from memory. You had to say it out loud as you wrote it down. No compressed lettering uh, or smudges or else the whole document you were working on was rendered worthless and was binned. Within 30 days, an editor was appointed to check over your work. And the middle word on each page must match the middle word on the page of the page you were copying. If that wasn't right, it was in the bin. You were allowed three mistakes that could be corrected within those 30 days. Beyond that, any more mistakes, uh, it was destroyed. They actually burned it and then buried it just to make sure that there was no passing on of error. What a scrupulous technique. The Aleppo Codex, a book of manuscripts dated about AD 920, is the earliest uh, Tanakh manuscript, but it doesn't have the Torah in there. The Leningrad Codex, dated AD 1008, has the full text, and that's the earliest full text, until 1947-1948, when you have the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you have something dated 1000 AD, or AD 1000, for writings that were th thousands of years before. How can you trust that? Thankfully, the Dead Sea Scrolls roll back the years by a thousand years. And you come into the first century, and even before that, and you find when you compare the Dead Sea Scrolls with what was in what was known as the Masoretic text, the text of the Masorets, there is 95% consistency. That's remarkable. After all those years, such a consistency. What about the New Testament? The precision of New Testament copying techniques has been proven by the multitude of copies, just the sheer wealth of copies that Brian has already pointed us to. Textual criticism is the so-called science, where you take these almost overwhelming numbers of copies of manuscripts and you compare them. And they are found to be 99.5% textually pure. Bruce Metzger said that. The inconsistencies of the 0.5% are minor and do not affect any doctrines. F.F. Bruce, in 1981, in uh, an article, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? In fact, I think it was a book, said this. The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. It is a curious fact that historians have often been much readier to trust the New Testament records than of many theologians. Well said, Bruce. What about the boundary of the scriptures? We thought about the source, we've thought about the transmission quickly, and then we're going to think about the boundary. This in your Bible study notes or in books that you might look up is often referred to as the canon of Scripture. I was told not to use the technical terms you see in the talk, but you can't avoid them. So canon is actually from the Greek word canon, uh, 
which means uh, a ruler, a measure, but also has the sense of a boundary. Where do we measure the boundary? When it comes to the Old Testament, it's quite simple. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God incarnate, endorsed the Tanakh, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. Luke 24, verse 44. He said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The word Tanakh means Torah, Nevi'im and Ketuvim. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Lord endorsed it all. He also went further than that on one occasion. And when he was speaking uh, to Jewish leaders and to the people of Jerusalem in Luke 11:51, he said, from the blood of Abel, who's the first person to die in the Bible in Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah, who was a martyr, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. He says, this is all going to be charged against this generation. You read about the death of Zechariah in our book of Second Chronicles. Now, what's interesting is in the order of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles is at the end. So Jesus there was saying from beginning to end, the completeness of the scriptures. He says, this generation of Jews, you're guilty of failing it. So if we claim to trust Jesus as God, then we're going to trust what he says about the Old Testament. It's that simple. But what about the writings in the Old Testament that are mentioned but don't feature? A bit like Paul's references to his own letters. We have the Chronicles of Nathan, the prophecy of Ahijah, the visions of Iddo the seer, the Chronicles of Samuel the seer, of Gad the seer, the book of Jashar, the records of Shemaiah the prophet, and the treatise of Iddo the seer. If you want references for those, I can give you them after. What about them? They were sources. People in compiling, the chroniclers were compiling under the superintendence of the work of God. The sources are not inspired. Jesus didn't refer to them or to other writings of the intertestamental period that find their way into Catholic Bibles that are known as the Apocrypha. He never referred to them. Simple, I think. What about the New Testament? Maybe a little bit more difficult. This is where the, uh, the debate and the argument comes. You know, it was recognized by the early Christians. It wasn't created, the canon of the New Testament. Essentially, what's in the Bible is in the Bible because it is authoritative. And what's in the New Testament is in there because it is authoritative. It's from the apostles or their close companions. As Jim Packer famously said, the church no more created the canon than Sir Isaac Newton created gravity. Isaac Newton recognized it and went to explain it. The church is not responsible for saying these books are in the New Testament. They recognized it. In AD 170, the first list of New Testament books appeared, 23 of them, and we've got 27. The Council of Laodicea in AD 363, 27 books are mentioned. And Athanasius, uh, when he wrote his festal letter at Easter in AD 367, 27 books are mentioned. The councils of Hippo and Carthage in the late 4th century confirm the canon, confirm it, recognize it, confirm it. Because they were facing um, the onslaught of people saying, well, this, 
writing should be in there and this writing should be in here. And they came together and said, no, uh, for the last 350 years, no, it's these. You know, up until that time, copies of the Bible or the New Testament had to be shared secretly because people were being persecuted. But when Christianity became the official uh, religion, if I can say that, of the Roman Empire, then suddenly they could start to meet and discuss these things. That's why it took nearly 400 years for that to happen. It wasn't that they decided 400 years later, oh, well, let's, let's just get together and sort out what the New Testament should be. New Testament books are authored by apostles, Jesus' own personally endorsed and empowered spokesman. Remember that text uh, from 2 Peter 3. Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Very quickly, to finish, all of this tells us that this has ultimate authority for everything, for all life. James Montgomery Boyce said, the most important reason for believing the Bible to be the word of God written, and hence the sole authority for Christians in matters of faith and conduct, is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus lived under the authority of the Old Testament. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, Luke 18, 31, and all things that are written about me and the prophets, the Son of Man, about the Son of Man will be completed. And Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments is everlasting. The Lord Jesus himself, about his own words. Luke 21, 33. And this gives us confidence about the apostolic writings of the New Testament. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Not only is it authoritative, but it is powerful. It saves, it sanctifies, it purifies, it prunes, it convicts, it comforts, it guides, it grows. And that's using its own terms because it's supernatural. And it does a supernatural work of God in us when we submit ourselves to it. Peter said, 1 Peter 1, 23, says, you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Your salvation, your life with God begins with the word of God. So James goes on in his letter to say, become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Finish with this little uh, mental picture for you to take away. I've heard of the analogy used of the scriptures being likened uh, to a telescope. You can be fascinated by the intricacy of the design and the mechanics of the telescope. But if that's all you're interested in, you're missing out on what the telescope was designed for. It's designed to help you see what you cannot see without it. That's what the scriptures are to us. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples.